Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring starship sofa and far-fetched fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. In case you missed it, our editor Scott Silk had an interview with the Right to Survive podcast. I've linked to the episode in the show notes for you to give a listen. Scott does a terrific job of representing the staff here at Tales of Terrify, does a great job of stressing the love for our narrators that we have, and also moderating the answer about how long it takes to go from an accepted story to airing. Our former editor, Philip Oldham, and Scott Silk have done a tremendous job of streamlining, organizing, and making a more logical process than what it had been in the past. Give it a go, and thank you, Scott. Let's hear some stories. Our first story of the night comes to us from Randy Strew. Randy is an audiobook narrator, freelance voice talent, and writer. He lives in Wisconsin with his amazing wife, four beautiful children, and two tolerable cats. Here comes Randy Strew's Pyrophobia. The body has eaten. I stand numb like the rest. To the living we are dormant, but the truth is far, far worse. My tongue works between my teeth to dislodge the remnants, and I want to be sick, but the body won't let me. Can't. Human flesh still tastes like human flesh when you're dead, even when you need it. At first, the dormancy is the brain's way of trying to process what you've done. What you're doing. Then, when it hits you that you're still able to process anything, you just try to shut it out. You try to shut out the memory of it. You try to kill the urge, even when you know you can't. Because the worst part, the real, uncontested hell of it, is that you still have a soul. 
My hands twitch in an unconscious rebellion against what the body has done, as though they, independently of the urge, want to shake the blood off and pretend with my brain that it didn't happen. Then the child, a girl, rises from near my feet. She, it, takes a few steps before standing dormant as well, processing, becoming aware. When the next living steps into our line of sight or makes a noise to capture the body's attention, the processing will cease. The body will take over as the urge becomes frenzy. The mind will shut itself off as the brain turns its faculties over to walking, to running, to grabbing, to feeding. If there is mercy to be found, this is where it is, that there is simply not enough consciousness left to let the body work its will and simultaneously process what it is doing. That will come later, when, satisfied, the body will relinquish the mind and the processing will begin anew, along with the guilt, the anger, the pain, will gnaw the soul until the next living person wanders near, or else the body simply takes over and moves forward with the rest, cattle in search of new grazing grounds. She, the newly risen, was just a child, a little girl who wandered perhaps too far from those who protected her. In her face, I can almost recognize someone. My own daughter from long before any of this started. All ponytails and smiles and the face of an angel when she asked for an extra kiss goodnight for tickles, her stuffed teddy bear. Grown now, my daughter had gone off to college before the trouble started. Her mother and I were looking for her after the initial outbreak when we were taken by surprise. I was left for dead. It's weird, but when you wake up that first time, you can remember exactly what happened. Things your brain could not possibly have processed at the time come back with a kind of crystal clarity, as though the eyes want to make sure you don't miss everything they captured. It's that clarity which serves as your first warning that you haven't avoided hell. You carry it with you. It will remain with you until the final bullet, machete strike, or open flame sends you there permanently. I remember we were searching a building for supplies. My wife and I figured our daughter must have fled toward the western states, outside the major population centers, toward higher ground. So, we too were headed west. We had a few others with us, who thought the general direction sounded like a good plan, even if not the quixotic search for our child. The thing came out of nowhere, or seemed to. My eyes had caught sight of it through the dark a few seconds before, Seconds that, had my brain processed what it had seen before the strike, might have saved my life, such as it was. The thing was stuck in the narrow space between a desk and a wall, crouched down. I guess, now that I have nothing but time to think about it, she must have crouched there to hide and was unable to get unstuck before she herself was noticed. It was just a nick, really, a scratch of the tooth against my exposed knuckle. It was enough. The group wouldn't travel with me, and though I protested, I knew they were right. I knew the best and safest option for my wife was to leave me behind. I didn't want to die, though, not by their hand, and not right away, not if there was still a chance. I found a quiet, out-of-the-way spot to sit it out and wait to see if the wound was fatal. It was. There is a point, if you die this way, as opposed to instantly or during a feeding frenzy, at which you are neither living nor dead. You have zero chance of survival. You still have all your mental faculties. You still have control of your own body. But the dead leave you alone. 
I reached that point, the fever spiking, my sweat raining off my hair and hot sheets, and decided I no longer wanted to stay inside. That was it. I could have opted to remove myself as a potential threat to anyone else, but when it came right down to it, I just didn't want to. It's probably that, more than anything else, which has damned me. The simple fact that I just didn't care whether my corpse hurt anyone after I was gone. If I'd known then what I know now, I'd have eaten a bullet without a second thought the minute I felt that tooth against my knuckle. I never did find out what happened to our daughter. The little girl stands silently, waiting, remembering. Her ponytails in shambles, some of her hair ripped out, her jeans torn and filthy, her shirt a rag that might once have been pink. Slowly, she turns her dead eyes to lock with my own, her head cocked to the side, too few sinews, too little muscle left from my own body's attack to pick it up. She stops turning, processes again, and in her eyes I see the question, why? This is why I spend my time forgetting, even as my tongue works loose her torn muscle from my teeth. Because the shame of it, far outside my own guilt, is the reminder. I, with all those like me, really am damned. Damned to move outside my own will. Damned to surrender to the body's urge and frenzy. Damned to damn others to my same fate. And damned finally into hell, where my soul will pay the debt wrought by my flesh. I force my eyes away and move past her. The feeling is like floating as each bloodless leg follows command after command to move. Move. Keep going forward. One step, then another. Moving forward. Away. But from what? I can no longer remember and I stop. Process. I turn again and she is there with her questioning gaze. I wonder if she even knows why she's following me. I will myself forward again and again, and after every stop to remember why. And at every stop, there she is. She must be matching my every footstep with two in order to keep up, but she does. I keep moving forward until a two-near explosion catches my attention. I have time to register fire, and then the body takes over. The body is afraid of fire. I tell myself it's some remembered instinct woven deep into the DNA, reactivated on a primal level, like the hunter instinct that drives the body forward to feed. Or maybe it's just the heat. I want to think we fear fire for the same reason we fear remembering. It's just another reminder of hell, and that hell is a fear not even the body can deny. But it's only half true, and when I stand, unblinking, cycling through the slowly diminishing memories and thoughts and fears and beliefs, the whole truth will come to, unbidden and unwelcome. The truth is that by the firelight, we can see them. They move through the flickering shadows, the dark ones, creatures of smoke and void, drifting through the unseen negative spaces in our world. Their faces are unstable things, masks of sneering monstrosity in one moment, and in the next. In the next moment, they are the faces of those I've tried to forget. Those the body has forced me to kill. My friends. My loved ones. The ones I fear are already dead. The accusing eyes born into mine as face after face flickers past, changing with every movement of the flames that reveal them. Always staring. Always accusing. Always, always mocking. I don't know what these dark ones are. 
I don't know what they want or what they intend to do. There is only one thing I know for certain. The one feeling I have left in this decaying body that tie me into the horrific world into which I have awakened. They are waiting. We moved away from the fire some time ago, the body having taken over again. I regain control and, for the first time since my death, recognize where I'm standing. We're back at the college campus. It had taken my wife and me a month to get here after we were forced to leave our car behind on the turnpike. I still remember the tears in her eyes when we spotted the clock tower in the distance and knew our family was about to be reunited. The memory of her tears takes me right to our daughter's room and my sobbing wife rereading her note. Forced to run and I don't know where. I love you. The words scrawled in haste are what comes back to me most often as I stand and wait for the body to take over again. Forced to run, I don't know where. The story of my, well, whatever this is. Forced to eat, I don't know who. Don't want to know who. I look beside me and see that yes, the little one is still at my side. She and about a dozen others. Waiting. We hear a noise. Our eyes snap forward. Living. I can see their hearts beating, their blood pumping. Darkness begins to creep in as the body starts to take over. I push back. These living are armed. I soon won't have any choice but to give in to what the body wants, but I concentrate. At least I can stay toward the back of the pack. Wait till the living have been overrun and avoid hell. I concentrate on keeping the urge at bay, keeping the frenzy from overtaking me. The girl advances. No, I reach out to grab her hand and knock her off balance. She trips and falls, rises again shakily. It was enough, I hope, to keep her at the back and away from harm. Darkness. The taste of blood and flesh. The smell of living meat. The sounds of blood-soaked lips smacking together. I come two seconds before my hands shovel another quivering something into my mouth. I throw down what I have and rise realize this may be my chance to get away from the girl. I turn and find myself face to face with my little tormentor. Her body is smaller than mine. It must have been finished for some time, leaving her standing to wait for me. I set my eyes ahead and walk forward away from what we've done. The little one is trying to swat at the flies gathering on her face. She can't feel them. It's more the remembered annoyance than it is an actual problem. At first, I tried to get rid of them, too. The insects crawl even now inside and around my exposed flesh and muscle. They fly into my many wounds, into my mouth and nose, into my eyes. Mostly, between trying to forget the present or the body taking over to feed, I don't pay the bugs any attention. But at first, I was the same as her. Her movements are too slow. Her brain has to direct her arms individually, and by the time they've gotten to her face, she's forgotten why she wanted them there. When she stops moving, she remembers and tries to swat once again, but the insects have already moved on, and she must change the position of her arms. She is frustrated and will eventually give up and give in. We all do. I stand, eyes twitching this way and that, glancing around at the others like us, they themselves standing and remembering and thinking. As in the times before, I try to train my body, to put it back under the guidance of my consciousness. I lift my hand, forcing myself to concentrate on the action, on the why. I lift my hand because I want to lift it, because I want to control it. 
I watch my hand as it rises, and I might be smiling, but I don't know. Nevertheless, I am glad, watching my hand. Glad because it is obedient, and I am still awake. Darkness begins to encroach, the body trying to take over, but I push it out, concentrating harder. Hand to head, hand to head, hand to head. My hand rises above my line of sight, and I move it backwards, and then down once again. Hand to head, hand to head. It comes to a rest on the top of my skull, and I am aware. The little one sees my motion, and in the understanding that comes only with wakefulness, begins to raise her own hand. But the light is soon gone from her eye, her stare blank once again, and the hand drops, the brain no longer functioning to move it. That smell again, meat and smoke. They are the living, back again, and I understand. We are being hunted, exterminated, and I wonder if damnation is mercy after all. I see the darkness around the corner of my eyes, my vision tunneling, focusing on the fire and on those who carry it. I concentrate once again to push away the darkness. Stand still, I command. Stand still. Stand still. Watch. Wait. The frenzy begins to overtake the dead, from the nearest to the living and moving backwards. I focus on the flickering firelight, on the shadows waiting within. The dark ones. The dead begin to move, shuffling slowly as their bodies fight for control. I watch as a bladed weapon arcs towards the head of one of the dead, splitting the skull, shadows dancing in the light of the flames, and then movement. Unexpected. As the body falls, a darkness descends from the nearby fire, an adder striking at its prey. The shadow burrows into the body and rips out a dying ember. The soul, I realize. That which was all that remained of the living person. The dark one tears at this ember, consumes it, and the light is gone. The inky, malignant shadow slinks back to the flame, waiting for the next. The terror is too much for my body to handle. Its own fear mixes with that in my mind and finally wrests control from my consciousness. There is a clearing fog as my conscious mind tries once again to push itself forward. I know I am running. I know the body wants to feed and to flee. And understanding comes. In its fear and hunger, the body is losing control. The will has gained a foothold in the split between two confused instincts. Ahead, I see the little one, her body in its frenzied state, trying to snap and claw at the living who holds her back with one hand. In his other hand, a torch, raised to strike. Run, I tell my body. Run and save. Run and save. I don't know that sparing the little one from the fate of the dark one this one time will save me, but I know I must. I must not let her tiny ember be swallowed by the demonic mist in the flame. I reach her as the head of the torch descends, and forcing one last act of will, forcing the dread out of the body, I reach for the fire. The body tries to shut me out, to blacken my consciousness and take over once more, but I own it now. The foothold gained in the space between hunger and terror has widened, and the body is mine. I grab hold the flame, and as the fire lights across my dry and necrotic flesh, I stare down at the little one. In her eyes, recognition. She turns in the firelight as the black shadow, the dark one, crawls into my eyes, drowning my vision, shutting down my will, permanently killing that which the body had for so long tried to subdue. And I know I am smiling as I watch her turn and flee. And then I give myself to the black.
Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. That was Randy Strews' Pyrophobia, as read by the author. Thank you, Randy. Our second story for the night is a classic, taking us back quite in a few years. It comes to us from E.F. Benson. Edward Frederick, or E.F. Benson, was an English novelist, biographer, memoirist, archaeologist, and short story writer. He was born in Wellington College in Berkshire, the fifth child of the headmaster, Edward White Benson, later Chancellor of Lincoln Cathedral, Bishop of Truro, and Archbishop of Canterbury, and Mary Sidgwick Benson, also known as Minnie. Benson was educated at Temple Grove School, then at Marlborough College, where he wrote some of his earliest works and upon which he based his novel David Blaze. He continued his education at King's College, Cambridge. Benson never married and is speculated to have been gay. He was a precocious and prolific writer, publishing his first book while still a student. Nowadays, he is known principally for his Map and Lucia series about Emmeline, Lucia, Lucas, and Elizabeth Mapp. Benson died during 1940 of throat cancer at the University College Hospital, London. He is buried in the cemetery at Rye, East Sussex. Listen with me to E.F. Benson's Caterpillars. I saw a month or two ago in an Italian paper that the Villa Cascana, in which I once stayed, had been pulled down, and that a manufactory of some sort was in process of erection on its site. There is therefore no longer any reason for refraining from writing of those things which I myself saw, or imagined I saw, in a certain room on a certain landing of the villa in question, nor from mentioning the circumstances which followed, which may or may not according to the opinion of the reader, throw some light on or be somehow connected with this experience. The Villa Cascana was in all ways but one a perfectly delightful house, yet, if it was standing now, nothing in the world, I use the phrase in its literal sense, would induce me to set foot in it again, for I believe it to have been haunted in a very terrible and practical manner. Most ghosts, 
when all is said and done, do not do much harm. They may perhaps terrify, but the person whom they visit usually gets over their visitation. They may, on the other hand, be entirely friendly and beneficent. But the appearances in the Villa Cascana were not beneficent, and had they made their visit in a very slightly different manner, I do not suppose I should have got over it any more than Arthur Inglis did. The house stood on an ilex-clad hill, not far from the Sestri di Levante, on the Italian Riviera, looking out over the iridescent blues of that enchanted sea, while behind it rose the pale green chestnut woods that climb up the hillsides till they give place to the pines that, black in contrast with them, crown the slopes. All round it, the garden in luxuriance of mid-spring bloomed and was fragrant, and the scent of magnolia and rose, borne on the salt freshness of the winds from the sea, flowed like a stream through the cool, vaulted rooms. On the ground floor, a broad, pillared loggia ran round three sides of the house, the top of which formed a balcony for certain rooms of the first floor. The main staircase broad and of grey marble steps, led up from the hall to the landing outside these rooms, which were three in number, namely two big sitting-rooms and a bedroom arranged en suite. The latter was unoccupied. The sitting-rooms were in use. From these the main staircase was continued to the second floor, where were situated certain bedrooms, one of which I occupied, while from the other side of the first-floor landing some half-dozen steps led to another suite of rooms, where, at the time I am speaking of, Arthur Inglis, the artist, had his bedroom and studio. Thus the landing outside my bedroom at the top of the house commanded both the landing of the first floor and also the steps that led to Inglis's room. Jim Stanley and his wife, finally, whose guest I was, occupied rooms in another wing of the house, where also were the servants' quarters. I arrived just in time for lunch on a brilliant noon of midday. The garden was shouting with color and fragrance, and not less delightful after my broiling walk up from the marina, should have been coming from the reverberating heat and blaze of the day into the marble coolness of the villa. Only, the reader has my bare word for this and nothing more, the moment I set foot in the house, I felt that something was wrong. This feeling, I may say, was quite vague, though very strong, and I remember that when I saw letters waiting for me on the table in the hall, I felt certain that the explanation was here. I was convinced that there was bad news of some sort for me. Yet when I opened them, I found no such explanation of my premonition. My correspondence all reeked of prosperity. Yet this clear miscarriage of a presentment did not dissipate my uneasiness. In that cool, fragrant house, there was something wrong. I am at pains to mention this, because to the general view, it may explain that though I am, as a rule, so excellent a sleeper that the extinction of my light on getting into bed is apparently contemporaneous with being called on the following morning. I slept very badly on my first night in the Villa Cascana. It may also explain the fact that when I did sleep, if it was indeed in sleep that I saw what I thought I saw, 
I dreamed a very vivid and original manner. Original, that is to say, in the sense that something that, as far as I knew, had never previously entered into my consciousness, usurped it then. But since, in addition to this evil premonition, certain words and events occurring during the rest of the night might have suggested something of what I thought happened that night, it will be well to relate them. After lunch, then, I went round the house with Mrs. Stanley, and during our tour she referred, it is true, to the unoccupied bedroom on the first floor, which opened out of the room where we had lunched. We left that unoccupied, she said, because Jim and I have a charming bedroom and dressing room, as you saw, in the wing, and if we used it ourselves, we should have to turn the dining room into a dressing room and have all our meals downstairs. As it is, however, we have our little flat here. Arthur Inglis has his little flat in the other passage, and I remembered, aren't I extraordinary, that you once said that the higher up you were in a house, the better you were pleased. So I put you at the top of the house instead of giving you that room. It is true that a doubt, vague as my uneasy premonition, crossed my mind at this. I did not see why Mrs. Stanley should have explained all this if there had not been more to explain. I allow, therefore, that the thought that there was something to explain about the unoccupied bedroom was momentarily present to my mind. The second thing that may have borne on my dream was this. At dinner, the conversation turned for a moment on ghosts. Inglis, with the certainty of conviction, expressed his belief that anybody who could possibly believe in the existence of supernatural phenomena was unworthy of the name of an ass. The subject was instantly dropped. As far as I can recollect, nothing else occurred or was said that could bear on what follows. We all went to bed rather early, and personally I yawned my way upstairs, feeling hideously sleepy. My room was rather hot, and I threw all the windows wide, and from without poured in the white light of the moon and the love song of many nightingales. I undressed quickly and got into bed, but though I had felt so sleepy before, I now felt extremely wide awake. But I was quite content to be awake. I did not toss or turn. I felt perfectly happy listening to the song and seeing the light. Then it is possible, I may have gone to sleep, and what follows may have been a dream. I thought, anyhow, that after a time the nightingales ceased singing and the moon sank. I thought also that if, for some unexplained reason, I was going to lie awake all night, I might as well read, and I remembered that I had left a book in which I was interested in the dining room on the first floor. So, I got out of bed, lit a candle, and went downstairs. I went into the room, saw on a side table the book I had come to look for, and then simultaneously saw that a door to the unoccupied bedroom was open. A curious grey light, not of dawn nor of moonshine, came out of it, and I looked in. The bed stood opposite the door, a big four-poster, hung with tapestry at the head. Then I saw the greyish light of the bedroom came from the bed, or rather from what was on the bed, 
for it was covered with great caterpillars, a foot or more in length, which crawled over it. They were faintly luminous, and it was the light from them that showed me the room. Instead of the sucker feet of ordinary caterpillars, they had rows of pincers like crabs, and they moved by grasping what they lay on with their pincers, and then sliding their bodies forward. In color, these dreadful insects were yellowish-gray, and they were covered with irregular lumps and swellings. There must have been hundreds of them, for they formed a sort of writhing, crawling pyramid on the bed. Occasionally, one fell off onto the floor with a soft, fleshy thud. And though the floor was of hard concrete, it yielded to the pincer feet as if it had been putty, and, crawling back, the caterpillar would mount onto the bed again to rejoin its fearful companions. They appeared to have no faces, so to speak, but at one end of them there was a mouth that opened sideways in respiration. Then, as I looked, it seemed to me as if they all suddenly became conscious of my presence. All the mouths, at any rate, were turned in my direction, and next moment they began dropping off the bed with those soft, fleshy thuds onto the floor and wriggling toward me. For one second a paralysis as of a dream was on me, but the next I was running upstairs again to my room, and I remember feeling the cold of the marble steps on my bare feet. I rushed into my bedroom and slammed the door behind me, and then, I was certainly wide awake now, I found myself standing by my bed with the sweat of terror pouring from me. The noise of the banged door still rang in my ears, but, as would have been more usual if this had been mere nightmare, the terror that had been mine when I saw those foul beasts crawling about the bed or dropping softly on the floor did not cease then. Awake, now, if dreaming before, I did not at all recover from the horror of the dream. It did not seem to me that I had dreamed. And until dawn I sat or stood, not daring to lie down, thinking that every rustle or movement that I heard was the approach of the caterpillars. To them and the claws that bit into cement, the wood of the door was child's play. Steel would not keep them out. But with the sweet and noble return of day, the horror vanished. The whisper of the wind became benignant again. The nameless fear, whatever it was, was smoothed out and terrified me no longer. Dawn broke, hueless at first, then it grew dove-colored, then the flaming pageant of light spread over the sky. The admiral rule of the house was that everybody had breakfast where and when he pleased, and in consequence it was not till lunchtime that I met any of the other members of our party. Since I had breakfast on my balcony and wrote letters and other things till lunch, in fact, I got down to that meal rather late, after the other three had begun. Between my knife and fork there was a small pillbox of cardboard, and as I sat down, Inglis spoke. "'Look at that,' he said. "'Since you are interested in natural history, I found it crawling on my counterpane last night, and I don't know what it is.' I think that before I opened the pillbox I expected something of the sort which I found. 
Inside it, anyhow, was a small caterpillar, grayish-yellow in color, with curious bumps and excrescences on its rings. It was extremely active and hurried around the box this way and that. Its feet were unlike the feet of any caterpillar I ever saw. They were like the pincers of a crab. I looked and shut the lid down again. Now, I don't know it, I said, but it looks rather unwholesome. What are you going to do with it? Oh, I shall keep it, said Inglis. It has begun to spin. I want to see what sort of a moth it turns into. I opened the box again and saw that these hurrying movements were indeed the beginnings of the spinning of the web of its cocoon. Then Inglis spoke again. It has got funny feet, too, he said. They're like crab's pincers. What's the Latin for crab? Oh, yes, cancer. So, in case it's unique, let's christen it Cancer Inglisenesis. Then something happened in my brain, some momentary piecing together of all that I had seen or dreamed. Something in his words seemed to me to throw light on it all, and my own intense horror at the experience of the night before linked itself on what he had just said. In effect, I took the box and threw it, caterpillar and all, out of the window. There was a gravel path just outside, and beyond it a fountain playing into a basin. The box fell onto the middle of this. Inglis laughed. So the students of the occult don't like solid facts, he said. My poor caterpillar! The talk went off again at once to other subjects, and I have only given in detail as they happened. These trivialities, in order to be sure myself, that I have recorded everything that could have borne on occult subjects or on the subject of caterpillars. But... At the moment when I threw the pillbox into the fountain, I lost my head. My only excuse is that, as is probably plain, the tenet of it was, in miniature, exactly what I had seen crowded onto the bed in the unoccupied room. And though this translation of those phantoms into flesh and blood, or whatever it is caterpillars are made of, ought perhaps to have relieved the horror of the night— as a matter of fact, it did nothing of the kind. It only made the crawling pyramid that covered the bed in the unoccupied room more hideously real. After lunch, we spent a lazy hour or two strolling about the garden or sitting in the loggia, and it must have been about four o'clock when Stanley and I started off to bathe, down the path that led by the fountain into which I had thrown the pillbox. The water was shallow and clear, and at the bottom of it I saw its white remains. The water had disintegrated the cardboard, and it had become no more than a few strips and shreds of sodden paper. The center of the fountain was a marble Italian cupid which squirted water out of a wineskin held under its arm, and crawling up its leg was the caterpillar. Strange and scarcely credible as it seemed, it must have survived the falling to bits of its prison and made its way to shore, and there it was, out of arm's reach, weaving and waving this way and that as it evolved its cocoon. Then, as I looked at it, it seemed to me, again, like the caterpillar I had seen last night, it saw me, and breaking out of the threads that surrounded it, it crawled down the marble leg of the cupid and began swimming like a snake across the water of the fountain toward me. It came with extraordinary speed, 
The fact of a caterpillar being able to swim was new to me, and in another moment was crawling up the marble lip of the basin. Just then, Inglis joined us. Why, if it isn't old cancer Inglisensis again, he said, catching sight of the beast. What a tearing hurry it is in. We were standing side by side on the path, and when the caterpillar had advanced to within about a yard of us, it stopped and began waving again as if in doubt as to the direction in which it should go. Then it appeared to make up its mind and crawled onto English's shoe. It likes me best, he said, but I don't really know that I like it. And as it won't drown, I think perhaps... He shook it off his shoe onto the gravel path and trod on it. All afternoon the air got heavier and heavier with the Sirocco that was without doubt coming up from the south. And that night again I went up to bed feeling very sleepy. But below my drowsiness, so to speak, there was the consciousness, stronger than before, that there was something wrong in the house, that something dangerous was close at hand. But I fell asleep at once, and, how long after I do not know, either woke or dreamed I awoke, feeling that I must get up at once, or I should be too late. Then, dreaming or awake, I lay and fought this fear, telling myself that I was the prey of my own nerves, disordered by Sirocco or what not, and at the time seemed quite clearly knowing in another part of my mind, so to speak, that every moment's delay added to the danger. At last this second feeling became irresistible, and I put on a coat and trousers and went out of my room onto the landing. And then I saw that I had already delayed too long, and that I was now too late. The whole of the landing of the first floor below was invisible under the swarm of caterpillars that crawled there. The folding doors into the sitting room from which opened the bedroom where I had seen them last night were shut, but they were squeezing through the cracks of it and dropping one by one through the keyhole, elongating themselves into mere string as they passed, and growing fat and lumpy again on emerging. Some, as if exploring, were nosing about the steps into the passage at the end of which were Inglis's rooms. Others were crawling on the lowest steps of the staircase that led up to where I stood. The landing, however, was completely covered with them. I was cut off. And of the frozen horror that seized me when I saw that, I can give no idea in words. Then, at last, a general movement began to take place, and they grew thicker on the steps that led to Inglis's room. Gradually, like some hideous tide of flesh, they advanced along the passage, and I saw the foremost, visible by the pale grey luminousness that came from them, reach his door. Again and again I tried to shout and warn him, in terror all the time, that they would turn at the sound of my voice and mount my stair instead. But for all my efforts, I felt that no sound came from my throat. They crawled along the hinge crack of his door, passing through as they had done before. And still I stood there, making impotent efforts to shout to him, to bid him escape while there was still time. At last the passage was completely empty. They had all gone, 
And at that moment, I was conscious for the first time of the cold of the marble landing on which I stood barefooted. The dawn was just beginning to break in the eastern sky. Six months after, I met Mrs. Stanley in a country house in England. We talked on many subjects, and at last she said, I don't think I have seen you since that dreadful news about Arthur Inglis a month ago. I haven't heard, said I. No, he has got cancer. They don't even advise an operation, for there is no hope of a cure. He is riddled with it, the doctors say. Now during all these six months, I do not think a day has passed on which I had not in my mind the dreams, or whatever you like to call them, which I had seen in Villa Cascana. It is awful, is it not? She continued, and I feel I can't help feeling that he may have... Caught it at the villa? I asked. She looked at me in blank surprise. Why did you say that? She asked. How did you know? Then she told me, in the unoccupied bedroom a year before there had been a fatal case of cancer. She had, of course, taken the best advice and had been told that the utmost dictates of prudence would be obeyed so long as she did not put anybody to sleep in the room, which had also been thoroughly disinfected and newly whitewashed, painted, but... That was E. F. Benson's Caterpillars, as read by Brian Rollins. Brian Rollins is a voice actor residing in Denver, Colorado. He's voiced over a dozen audiobooks, including the popular Glenn and Tyler series. Horror fans will want to check out his latest narration, Ancient Enemies, by Brian McKinley, a vampire political thriller. You can visit Brian at his website, thevoicesinmyhead.com, or on Twitter, at Voices of Brian. Thank you, Brian. That'll be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. Our show is produced by our editors, Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Leitze, and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales of the Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 License. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.